At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Good morning, church. A hearty welcome to those of you who are watching online. We welcome you. And if you're watching online, if you would grab um, elements, we are going to celebrate communion at the end of the service, so perhaps it would be a good time to grab some bread and some juice um, as we prepare our hearts for communion. For those of you who are here, if you don't have an element or a cup and a bread, um, there's some out in the lobby. You're welcome to grab it, and perhaps they'll bring some around later in the service. <clears throat> there's an old story about a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who was out driving with his wife, and he needed gas, so he pulled into a, a, a service station, and he put gas, and he went into the, into the store to pay for the gas and to get some bottles of water, and when he made his way out, he noticed that his wife was speaking to the service station attendant. He comes to find out that she, his wife, had dated him before she had married him. And so he, the CEO gets back in the car, they start driving off, and then the car's silent. There's silence, and, and he's feeling pretty good, pretty good about his success, pretty good, feeling pretty good about himself, and he finally breaks the silence and says to her, I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking that you're glad that you married me, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and not a gas station attendant. <clears throat> she smirked and said to him, no, that's not what I was thinking at all. I was thinking that if I had married him, he'd be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you'd be a gas station attendant. <clears throat> You've all heard the maxim, pride goes before a fall. And we've seen that all over the world and all over our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and perhaps even in our own life. That pride has a way of sneaking in there and causing a fall. And, it, and, and, and pride does all sorts of things. Pride makes us think we're better than we are. It makes us think we're independent, makes us think we're strong, makes us think we're excellent when we're none of those things. And yet the, the truth is that that skewed view of reality can destroy us, can't it? You know, pride is one of those sneaky sins. We can see it in everyone else, but it's hard to see it in ourselves, isn't it? Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. Hard to see it everywhere else, hard to see it in us. And pride, when pride settles in, it destroys families, it destroys relationships, it isolates people, it tears people apart. And we get filled with pride and we think we're okay. And in our pride, we walk off the edge of the cliff and we're whistling a tune until we hit rock bottom and we're surprised when we hit bottom because we never expected it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're in a series, a sermon series called Family. Why bother? And we saw last, uh, last two weeks ago how God formed the first family created them in the image of God and gave them the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to image Him well. And last week we saw how that first family that was living in paradise with the best of conditions chose to rebel against God. 
And as a result, they were kicked out of the garden, kicked out of fellowship with God, kicked out, and the image of God marred, but not gone, marred. And as a result, we now find a family outside of the Garden of Eden, a family after the fall. You see, a family after the fall is still part of the story of God. And even the best families can be torn apart by sin. But that was not the ideal. The ideal was for families to live in harmony, to live at peace, to live in love, to live in fellowship with one another as a picture of the perfection of the harmony of the relationships within the triune Godhead. But because of sin, all of that's gone. Harmony is lost, peace is lost, love is lost, and now we're at each other's throats and and families are torn apart, relationships are torn apart. Why? Because sin has set in. And sin destroys relationships. The story of the family we're going to look at today is the background is set up in the first part of chapter 4. In fact, if I can read the first two verses for you. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Let me pause there and say that Adam and Eve are now living outside the garden. I don't think they've gone too far. They're probably in Eden, but not in the garden. They probably have a tent pitched just outside of the entranceway. They probably can see the cherubim guarding the way into the garden. But they're just on the outskirts because they don't want to go too far from the presence of God. And that's where they're living And as they're living there, the Bible says that Adam knew Eve, and that's a euphemism for intimacy. In fact, the the Hebrew word for knew is the word yada. So you could rewrite this passage to say, Adam and Eve, yada, 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 and Cain. (laughs) See, now you know where it comes from. But that's the word. And, And can you imagine how excited they must have been when this first child is born? This very first pregnancy that leads to the very first birth in history. How excited they must have been that it's a boy. Because they know the promise of God from the previous chapter when they fell. That God said that an offspring would come who would crush the head of the serpent and turn all of this around. And they're thinking, can this be the one? Could this be the one who will fulfill that promise And turn this whole thing around. And so they name him Cain. Because Cain means gotten or acquired. And it's with such hope and such joy and such expectation that they bring this baby into the world and name him Cain, waiting for God to fulfill his promise through Cain. But then the story tells us that they have another baby boy. This one they name him Abel. But the name Abel means breath or vapor. In fact, it's the same word used in the book of Ecclesiastes to refer to vanity, meaninglessness. Now, why would they name one Cain and the other Abel? Why would one be acquired or gotten and the other vapor? Why would they name their son vapor? The truth is we don't know. Perhaps he was frail. Perhaps it was the brevity of life. Perhaps the hardship of life had gotten up, caught up to Adam and Eve. And so they name him Abel. We don't know. But one's Cain and one's Abel. And these two boys have such hope and such promise. And they have been brought into the world. And they're wondering, 
Could these be the one? And it's into that context that we focus this story, or the Bible focuses this story in chapter 4 on Cain, the firstborn son. But not in the way that Adam and Eve would have hoped. Not at all the way they would have hoped. Because what we're going to find is, we're going to find in this story the first conflict between brothers, the first rejection of worship, and the first murder. Why? All because of pride. And as we look at this story, what I want to leave with you this morning is that faithless pride destroys fallen people. Faithless pride destroys fallen people. I want to share with you three lessons that we can learn from this story about how faithless pride can destroy fallen people. And the first is that failure in faith is the front door to pride. Failure in faith is the front door to pride. Let me read starting at the end of verse 2 through verse 5. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. There's a time gap between verses 2 and 3. These boys that were born and named, they've grown up. They've become men. One becomes a farmer and one becomes a shepherd. One's growing crops, the other is tending sheep. Both good professions, the first professions in history. And in the course of time, in an appointed time, both of these men bring offerings to God. Both of them bring an offering to God and yet one is accepted and the other is not. Notice that we have that, we don't, we don't actually know how they know that one was accepted or not. Right? The Bible doesn't tell us. We can assume perhaps fire came down from heaven and consumed Abel's offering and not Cain's. Maybe it was a ray of sunlight that shone on Cain's and not the other. The truth is, we don't know, but for whatever reason, it was obvious to them that Cain's was accepted, sorry, Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. And the result of that recognition of rejection for Cain caused him to be angry. And the Bible says his face fell. That phrase, his face fell, speaks to shame. You see, he's ashamed because his little brother is outdoing him. His weaker, younger little brother is outplaying him. And that brings shame to the bigger, older brother, Cain. And so Cain is upset because the fact that God has regard for Abel's offering, but not his, wounds his pride, wounds his heart, and he's angry. So the question you're asking, I'm sure, is, why did God accept one and not the other? I'm so glad you asked. There's lots of reasons and lots of explanations given. Instead of rehearsing all of them, let me give you what I think are the right reasons. I think there are three reasons why Cain's offering was not accepted, but Abel's was. Three reasons. I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5 these words. Notice it says that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You notice that it seems that, the, that God is making a twofold distinction. A twofold distinction between Abel and his offering and Cain and his offering. So there's a twofold distinction. And in that distinction, 
The first reason I think that God accepted one and not the other is because Abel, if you notice, brought what? The firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, he brought the best of the best that he had to God. But if you look at what Cain brought, it says that Cain brought the fruit of the ground. Did you notice there's no adjectives there? There's no quality description about what Cain brought. It should have said Cain brought the first fruits of the crop that he harvested. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says he brought the fruit of the ground. In other words, when Abel brought the best of the best, Cain brought whatever was laying around. He brought whatever was laying around. I think it speaks to the quality of the offerings that these two brothers brought. One brought the best of the best, and the other brought whatever was laying around. I think that's the first reason. The second reason goes with that, and that is, one of these offerings involved the shedding of blood, and the other did not. Now, you'll read commentary after commentary, and all of them will disagree with me. And it's okay that they've got it wrong. It's okay. You're welcome to get it wrong too. It's all right. I'm willing to be wrong too. We'll extend grace where grace can be extended. Amen? But I think the shedding of blood is an important element in sacrifice. The scholars who disagree with me say that the reason that a shedding of blood is not necessary is that the grain offerings and the offering of first fruits are allowed in the Levitical system in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers. And that's true. God makes allowance for the people to bring a thanksgiving offering of grain and of first fruits to thank God for what God has given to them. That's absolutely true. Here's the problem with that. At this point in history, God has not instituted those Levitical sacrificial offerings. And so the only sacrifice Cain and Abel would have known are the offerings that Adam and Eve knew. And what offering did Adam and Eve know? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, which we looked at last week. And that is God killed an animal, skinned an animal, and clothed Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. You remember that? In the process of killing and clothing Adam and Eve, God would have used the blood that was shed as an atonement to cover not only the the physical body of Adam and Eve, but the sins of Adam and Eve. And so at this point in history, that's the only sacrifice they would have ever known, is the shedding of blood by the killing of an animal to cover sin. That's the first reason I think they got it wrong. Here's the second reason. Let's assume that we can apply the Levitical offerings to this context. Let's assume that my first argument is wrong. But if you read closely Leviticus and Numbers, you find that every time the people of Israel are bringing a grain offering or a firstfruits offering to God, it's always preceded by a burnt offering. Always. In other words, every time the people of Israel brought a grain offering or a thanksgiving offering of the firstfruits to thank God for giving them the grain and the fruits and the products of their field, it was always preceded by the shedding of blood. Because it requires the shedding of blood to cover sin first before you can give thanks. That's the paradigm in Leviticus and Numbers. That's why I think they got it wrong. It's okay. I, I can be wrong too. Amen. So quality 
Abel's quality far superior than Cain's. Abel's offering involves blood. Cain's does not. Third reason, I think, the third reason, I think, is perhaps the most important reason. <clears throat> and I think it sits at the foundation of why the first two reasons are given. <clears throat> and that is, it speaks to the heart. Abel brings an offering to God with the right heart, and Cain does not. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, it was Abel's faith that caused him to follow God with his whole heart in obedience to God's way, bringing a sacrifice that was the firstborn of the, of the flock and their fat portions. That's what caused Abel to bring the best. By the way, you realize that if you bring the first fruits or you bring the firstborn of your flock, you're essentially saying to God, Lord, I'm dependent on you. I'm giving you the best that I have and trusting you to provide for everything else. If you give God the first fruits of your crops, what you're saying is, God, I'm giving all of the first to you. I'm not guaranteed a second, and so I trust you to give me what I need to survive. It takes faith to offer your first fruits to God. Abel does that. Why? Because his heart is right. His heart is filled with faith that allows him to approach God in obedience and humbleness, and he offers to God what God has asked for. Cain, on the other hand, there's no faith. There's no obedience. There's no humility. He's bringing whatever's laying around. And it speaks to the state of his heart. You see, he doesn't have a heart of worship. He's just going through the motions. He's just checking the boxes. Folks, God is not as concerned with your offering as he is with the state of your heart. God could care less about your offering. What he wants from you and me is our heart. A Puritan author named Stephen Charnock put it this way. Without the heart, it is not worship. It is a stage play. It is acting a part without being that person. Really, it is a hypocrite. We may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. God is more interested in your heart. Abel brought to God the best because in his heart, he'd given it to God in submission, saying, God, I give it all to you. I give you my best, I give you their fat portions, and I trust you to provide. Cain, on the other hand, he wanted to come to God on his own terms. He wanted to come to God with what he had. He wanted to come to God by checking the boxes. You know, so many people get upset with God because God doesn't accept our best. God doesn't accept all of the things we try to do to please Him. And we accuse God of being so narrow and so restrictive. I mean, come on, God, why can't you accept all the ways to get to heaven? <clears throat> and people get angry because we can't get to God on our own terms. Cain tried that. Cain wanted to get to God and satisfy God's requirements on his terms. 
And God said no. God had no regard for the offering of Cain. Perhaps there's a Cain or two or three or dozen here this morning. Perhaps you're here thinking that by being here, you can check the box and said, Hey, look, I, I did what you asked me to do, God. I checked the box. I actually sang that song. It was pretty good. Look, God, look what I'm doing. All the things that I'm doing, I'm checking the box. But does God have your heart? You can do all those things and check every box till you're blue in the face, but if God doesn't have your heart, it's worthless. That's what Cain teaches us. He's just going through the motions. He's just going through the act of worship. He's just doing what he thinks he can do and get away with it. But all of the time, his heart is far from God. There's no faith. And as long as there's no faith, it's not acceptable to him. We cannot come to God in our own strength. By the way, as an aside, why is it that Abel is keeping sheep? At this point in history... Adam and Eve and their children are vegetarians. They don't get to eat meat to Genesis chapter 9. Why would it be that Abel is keeping sheep? It's not for meat. So the only other reason is it's for sacrifice. Huh, imagine that. We come to God not the way we want to come to God. We come to God on the basis of His Word in obedience to Him. You see, God wants us to allow our faith to carry us to Him in obedience and humility with a heart that's surrendered, doing things His way and not our way. Saying, Lord, I surrender it to You. Here I am. Do with me as You please. And so we find Cain angry, upset, proud. Proud. Because he's unwilling to do what God has asked him to do. Can you imagine just for a minute what it would have taken for Cain to have offered a blood sacrifice? What would have taken Cain to bring the right offering with the right heart? Remember, Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. What would it have taken for the farmer to offer a blood sacrifice? He would have had to go to his little brother and say what? Hey, little brother, can I have one of those? You see the problem? He's way too proud to ask. He's too proud to go to his little brother and ask him for one of those sheep to bring and sacrifice to the Lord in faith. Pride caused him to close the door on obedience and humility that caused him to offer an unacceptable sacrifice led to more anger and more pride and shame. Faith, or lack thereof, is the front door to sin and to pride. The second lesson I want to leave with you is that the, second, the, that the more pride, the more sin. The more pride, the more sin. In verse number 6, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I think it's pretty amazing that God chooses to engage with Cain. I mean, at this point, God could have done a number of things. He could have disciplined him. God could have ended his life. God could have done a number of things to Cain. But what does he do? He engages Cain in grace. He reaches out to Cain like a loving father. 
He addresses Cain's anger and his shame. And he says, Cain, why? What's with the anger? What's with the shame? You know what's right. Cain, you know what I require. You know that I want your heart. If you do well, won't you be accepted? Of course you will, Cain. And then God proceeds to give him a warning. If you don't do what's right, if you don't submit and surrender, then sin is lying like an animal crouching, ready to take you over, ready to devour you, but you can overcome it. He's telling Cain that, Cain, it's your choice. The decision is yours. Your choice to humble yourself before an almighty God or to let sin consume you and allow rage and anger and pride to overwhelm you. In other words, what God is telling Cain, Cain, you must be the victor over sin because if you cannot get victory over sin, then you will become a victim of sin. And that is when you will be consumed. So God has given him the warning. God has admonished him, has encouraged him, has responded in grace to this rebellious person who is trying to do things his way. And do you think he listened? Notice the next verse. In verse number 8, it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Just, Just like that. After hearing from God, after listening to Almighty God tell you exactly what you need to do to get right with Him, Cain rejects that. Cain rejects humility. Cain rejects submission. Cain rejects the Word of God. Cain rejects the grace of God. Calls Abel out into the field and when they were alone, he kills his brother. That was premeditated murder. Cold-blooded murder of his very own brother. Can you imagine how hard his heart had to have been? You realize that this isn't a result of his society. It's not a result of his culture. It's not a result of TV programming. It's not a result of social media feeds. It's not a result of bad parents. It's a result of none of that. Guess what it's a result of? Sin in our heart. Sin in his heart. That's what underlies Cain's actions, rejecting the curse, the, the grace of God, and then ending up killing his own brother. It's a result of pride that allowed it, it's a result of sin that allowed his pride to nurse his anger into murder. That's what pride can do. That's what sin can do. It tears brother from brother, families apart, it tears people apart. And one sin causes another sin and multiplies sin. Sin on top of sin. How many of you have ever lied before? Don't raise your hand. Just think about it. Now, how many lies did you have to say to cover up the first lie? And perhaps you're here today and you're still lying to cover up the lie that you told 20 years ago. I don't know. But sin causes more sin And sin to multiply and multiply. And that's what sin does. The more pride, the more sin. We see it all around us. Our society is rampant with it. But perhaps the best example historically is the story of David and Bathsheba. Remember David? He was the king of Israel. He was supposed to go out to war, but he decided to stay home 
And he was bored. He's walking on the rooftop of his house and he sees a couple of rooftops over a young lady taking a bath and lust is sparked. And instead of saying no to lust and repenting, lust is inflamed and he gets the lady brought over and he commits adultery. Then he finds out she's pregnant and in order to cover up that wrong, he murders her husband and takes her to be his wife. Sin on top of sin on top of sin. And when confronted, David does repent. But up to that point, he was going all the way to cover up his sin and his shame and his guilt. Sin creates more sin, creates more sin. In David and Cain, there is a warning for us all. When God rebukes us, when God confronts us, and when God calls us back to himself, don't run and hide inside your pride. Let's run and flee into the grace of God. Let's not run into our pride. Let's flee into the grace of God. Because sin will multiply itself like a cancer over and over again. And sin, if not dealt with in time, will kill relationships. And that's my third point. Pride kills relationships. Notice verse number 10. <clears throat> and the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I could bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. What did Cain deserve at this point? Come on. What did he deserve? He deserved to die. He had just taken the life of another human being who was created in the image of God. He had spilled the blood of his very own brother. He deserved to die. And yet what does God do? God doesn't kill him, does he? God extends more grace and more mercy. That's what God does. And in this interaction with Cain, we see God responding in mercy. To a man who deserved death, what does God do for the first time in history? God curses a person. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't curse them. God cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground. But he didn't curse Adam and Eve. Here, for the first time in history, a person is cursed. <clears throat> and God curses Cain from the ground. That's important because you remember he's a farmer. His profession and his strength are in farming. And God says, the ground will no longer yield to you its, its strength. You can no longer harvest food that will provide for your needs from the ground anymore. Cain is cursed in the area of his greatest strength. And then God tells him, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. You'll be kicked out of everywhere. You will wander the earth. You know what, friends? All of that is God's mercy because Cain deserved a whole lot worse than that, didn't he? That's the grace and mercy of God. But notice, notice verse 13. You know, it would be a great place to repent, right? It would have been a great place to say, Lord, I'm sorry. You're right, I'm wrong, I made a mistake, it's my fault, I'm sorry, forgive me. But do you read any, any, any regret 
Any repentance? Any remorse? There's nothing. And instead of repentance, what does he do? He complains that his punishment is too hard to bear, that it's too harsh. Poor me! He understands that God's driving him from the ground. He gets the fact that he's being driven from his family. And so, like a whining little boy, he's crying out to God, It's too much, God! I can't bear it! Anyone who finds me is going to kill me! And God says, oh, no, no, I'll take care of that. God puts a mark on him. Now, we don't know what the mark is, so stop speculating. We don't know. But whatever it was, was good enough to keep Cain safe from being found and killed. Now, remember, who's on the earth at this point? Adam and Eve, their children, and possibly children's children. That's who's on the earth. Cain is afraid that one of those family members is going to kill him for what he did to Abel. And so God marks him so that that won't happen. And Cain gets kicked out of the family. He gets kicked out of fellowship with God. He gets kicked out of that area. And the Bible says in the next few verses that he goes east of Eden, away from his family, away from the presence of God, and he goes and tries to live another life, away from the presence of God. Friends, that's what pride does to us. It tears us from our families. It tears us from relationships. It tears us from our churches. It tears us from our small groups. It tears us from one another and it isolates us and separates us. And in our pride and in our sin, we erect walls of anger and bitterness. We erect walls of unforgiveness and pride and we push people away. And that's what happened to Cain. His pride and his sin pushed him out, and he was no longer able to have fellowship with any of the people he grew up with and no longer able to be part of a community. That's what sin will do to us. In Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, he writes about a hobbit named Smeagol. Anybody remember Smeagol? Some of you do. Smeagol had a friend named Deagle. Smeagol and Deagle went fishing one day. And in the process of fishing, Deagle gets pulled into the water because of a giant fish. And as he is struggling under the water, as he gets to the bottom of the riverbed, he finds a ring. And that ring captivates him, so he grabs the ring and he comes up to the surface holding the ring. And Smeagol sees the ring. And he's so captivated by that powerful piece of jewelry that he proclaims, Hey, it's my birthday today. I deserve that ring. It's mine. And so Deagle and Smeagol end up fighting over the ring, and Smeagol ends up killing Deagle, and he takes possession of that ring. But that possession and obsession with that ring causes him to be rejected by his family, shunned by his society, and he ends up living in the mountains alone, rejected, totally isolated. And that obsession with the ring turns him into the vile and filthy creature we know as Gollum. It's a perfect picture of what sin and pride can do to us. Well, we may look good on the outside. We may look all put together, but inside there may be a Gollum. Filthy, vile, putrid, ugly, because pride and sin have gotten the best of us. Friends, we cannot let pride and sin separate us. Because that's not the image of God. 
The image of God is us living in harmony, in fellowship, in love, in grace with one another, parking our sin at the cross, parking our pride at the cross, and allowing us to come to God in humility and humbleness and meekness and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's how we come to God. And when we come to God in that way, we become fellow workers together for the glory of God with one another. That's what faithless pride does. It destroys fallen people. But when God confronted Cain, God said to Cain, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me. Your brother's blood is crying out to me. It's calling out for vengeance. It's calling out for justice. It's calling out for vindication. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's another blood that's crying out something very similar. It's crying also out for justice. It's also crying out for vindication. We find that blood in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. It says, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. While the blood of Abel is talked about here, you notice the blood of Jesus is better. Why? Because while the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and justice and vindication, Jesus' blood also cries out for those very same things, but instead of imposing all of that on you and me who deserve it, God the Father sacrifices His very own Son on the cross and says justice and mercy meets at the cross at a person named Jesus. And while Jesus' blood cries out for justice, God's wrath is satisfied when Jesus says, it is finished. Every last drop of God's wrath poured upon His own Son because He loved you and He loved me. Just as God approached Cain with grace and mercy, that same grace and mercy is available to you and to me. Friends, if you're here and you've got a hard heart, if you're here and you're a Cain, perhaps there's two or three or a dozen of you here, know that the grace of God is available for you. That the grace of God and the mercy of God that doesn't give you what you and I deserve is available for you and for me. The blood of Jesus. We sang nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No matter how deep your stains may be, no matter how much sin or how dark they may be, they get all washed white as snow in the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, may I introduce him to you? May I introduce you to Jesus who hung on a cross? Not because of his mistake. It was the ultimate murder of the perfect Lamb of God. Not for his mistake, but because of yours and mine. He paid the penalty that you and I could not pay. So that you and I could have a relationship with God that we did not deserve. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ by faith, can I ask you to bend your knee at the cross? To say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my pride. I'm sorry for the things I've done. And I recognize your sacrifice and I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to come into my life and to save me. And the Bible says that your heart will be flooded with grace and mercy and peace and love. And you will be transformed and adopted into the family of God. Don't get this close and miss an opportunity to be part of the family of God. For those of you who are in the family of God, I thank and praise God for every one of you. But perhaps 
as we get ready for communion, it's a great time to pause and to reflect. Is there a Cain in my heart? Perhaps I've accepted Christ, but pride and jealousy and envy and sin. I've erected barriers, barriers that are keeping people out, barriers that are keeping people at arm's length, barriers of bitterness and unforgiveness that we have built around us to isolate ourselves. And if that's you, remember the same God who approached Cain with grace stands with open arms waiting for you to come home. Won't you ask God for forgiveness? Won't you ask God to tear down those walls? As you confess those things to God, His blood will wash you clean. And you will be restored to a right relationship. Remember that as we take communion, part of the communion process is that we examine our hearts. That we get right with God and we get right with each other. So that when we take this communion bread and wine, we remember Him who loved us so much to go to a cross. So we're going to spend a minute or two in silence. And as you do, would you bow your heads? Go ahead, bow your heads. Close your eyes. Let your mind go back 2,000 years ago. There on a, cross, on a hill called Calvary stands a wooden cross where a Savior is fastened by three nails. On his head is a crown of thorns that pierces his head. His back ripped open by whips. He is bleeding from every side, not because of what he did, but because of what we did. Can you see him? If you are in Christ, confess our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for these stories that remind us that you are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, and a God who abounds in steadfast love. That you don't treat us according to our sins. You don't treat us the way we deserve. You treat us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in grace and mercy. So, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has hardened their heart towards you, Would your spirit soften them and remind them again of the price that you paid, the sacrifice that you made on their behalf to bring them into the family of God. And that all of us might remember that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust our sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. 
as we celebrate you this morning, as we remember the cross this morning. May the truths of these words continue to resonate in us. May those truths ring in us. Help us to never let sin and pride separate us, but help us to surrender it to you. We'd come to you with a right heart and faith, obedient, surrendered, in humility and meekness, saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And it is to you that we give the glory. In Jesus' sweet and precious and strong name we pray. Amen. If you have your elements, would you take them out? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Together, let's eat. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Together, let's drink. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood that washes us white as snow. Thank you for your faithfulness that never ceases, that never ends, that never fails. Thank you for the love that we don't deserve. All because of you. Before the foundation of the world, you chose to set your love upon us. Not because of any merit on our part. Not because we were somehow so beautiful. Not because we were something to behold. Simply because you chose to set your love upon us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the grace that you extended to us that saved us and added us into your family. And we will forever and eternally be grateful for all that you have done and all that you are going to do. And so to that end, we will give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.